and every parent is asking the same question about how do I guide my, my child when all they want to do is play video games. Okay. Number one is every kid, they're now addicted to video games. The thing that we said, you told them, don't pick that thing up. Don't do it. Now it became their lifeline. So it's a really interesting new dilemma. First parent, um, if you guys aren't aware of something, there is the best, best resource ever for any parent. It's called Common Sense Media. Teachers may know it, but I don't know if you know it. So write it down and put it in the back of your phone, Common Sense Media. What is it? Well, first of all, it's a group of professionals like doctors and psychologists. And the second thing they do is they do the best state-of-the-art research on kids and any kind of digital devices. I mean, phenomenal research. So you get a trend of how is this, is this normal? Is this not normal? How much should my kid be playing? They give you recommendations. The second thing they do and put this in the back of your list forever and tell every other parent this is that anytime a new digital device comes out, like a new game or a movie or a video game, you can go to it and it's like a gold standard. It'll tell you it's appropriate, it's not appropriate. Here's the ages it's good for, here are the ages it's not good for. So the first thing is Common Sense Media is also concerned about the rise in video games. NBC did a huge report on it. And you can also Google something, a really interesting article that you may want to read as a group or by yourself in the New York Times, probably two or three weeks ago, kid addiction to video games. What happened and what all of us are saying is that first, we should have been prepared for it because honestly, when it's when you're social distance, the only hope a kid has is being connected with another human being. And the source that we told him not to was now the video game. But what now happened is we threw the rules out and rightly so, because we have digital Zoom lessons. We also want to keep them occupied. We're working and we're all exhausted and we say, go, go for it. What every researcher is now telling you, now is the time to start weaning back and taking back the rules because every kid is doing it far more than you'd want to. Now, you could, that said, here's what the rules are. You got to strike a balance between what's online and what's offline. If the kid is only doing online activities, you're actually robbing the kid of learning his real strengths. I guess that wouldn't, uh, Bill Gates and, and uh, Stephen Jobs would probably be the, <laughs> the ones off when they were kids. In that case, you'd go, no, that's actually a strength because that guy is inventing half the stuff he's on. So that's interesting. Uh, Stephen Jobs, by the way, as a kid, Raised by the perfect parent, he was adopted, but what the father was, was a mechanic, used to bring home the best stuff for him to just tinker with all day long in the garage. That's what he was doing. He was online, but he was tinkering, so his curiosity was going up five levels. Your rule in your house is using the word with. You may play the video game, but you need to be with someone. Or you may be on that text, but you need to see someone. Because the biggest problem we have is that um, children's ability to be socially connected with one another, we are now looking at a dismal spiral. In fact, this morning I was on calls with Dubai and Vietnam. They were worried about their kids. Coming up tomorrow is Hong Kong. They are worried about, everybody across the world is worried about it because the kids are now not able to read each other. Your empathy levels go down when you can't see somebody's face. So step one is do this week without even setting your rules. Watch your kids and see out, just kind of take a little, you know, don't let them see you, but you can actually look at how often are they on digital devices? How often are they on the TV? How often are they on um, the texting? How often are they on a video game? 
And then you can start striking the balance because some kids are shockingly not on them very often. Then you, then the, the biggest problem you've got to do is introduce what is he going to do instead? That what is he going to do instead piece is the one that kids will go, I don't know, because they're very good at what they're now doing, which is the digital device. Some families are doing it. Um, I've got a mom who's been sending me, honestly, gosh, her kids are third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade. Knitting. She got her kids involved in knitting. Grandma started Zooming online, and she says, I wish I could show you them. They're absolutely amazing. If I can find it by the end of the day, the kids are just precious. Now they're going one step more. She found a group in Save the Children in Bangladesh. I kid you not. The kids got so good. Did you know that no, that most children's, most parents do not name their child for the first six months because they're not likely to live? The reason they're not likely to live on a scale of one to five is the cold. So what the kids are now doing is making hats and sending them to Bangladesh. So it's like win, win, win. I'm saying you've got to introduce something as a hobby. And if your kids don't know what else to do instead, some families are doing hobby day. She's doing knitting as a week. And she goes, oh, my gosh, they're into it. But she found a way to get them into it by showing them a Save the Nation tape. And she's, oh, my gosh, mom, we got to do this. Um, some, some dads are doing, okay, I'll do woodworking, see if my kid likes woodworking, but slowly start introducing. It's critical because if you don't, what'll happen is a lot of the other character strengths will go down. And frankly, what'll happen is the kids, if you're too hooked into social media, you actually become more stressed and your anxiety level, it counters it. It goes up. It doesn't go down. The final thing, and then I'll, I'll promise I'll shut up, but this, you got me on a topic that I'm like, wow. The other thing about it is watch your child when he's doing anything and ask yourself the key of whether he should continue or not. Is it healthy? Does it enhance him, make him more confident or see any of those strengths? Are they blossoming or is it countering and going down? If so, then you go, so what am I going to do instead? Set some new expectations. Make sure uh, ideally that the other parenting partner in the house is uh, buying it with you. Um, and if you need to, the other thing is don't you have to be the tracker. Many parents are getting tired of having to be the nagger. So they're putting on a sand dial or they're putting on a, uh, you know, like time it. And when the timer goes off, it's done. So with the kids becomes their own timer. So you don't have to start being the one who's the nagger. All That's right. the question. I bet you're not going to ask me another one. <laughs> no. So, so real quick, a follow-up to that, which came up in our discussion was, see if I can remember correctly. Um, a parent came up with a list with their kid of all different things they love to do with yeah. technology, video games being one of them. And it's something they're really good at too, because we're trying to find things they're good at and their strengths, et cetera. But then when they go to that list, the kid just always goes back to the video. So how do you get your kid interested to do the other things that he put on the list? Because what happens is he doesn't have time to do anything else on the list because he's going back to what he's good at. You always revert back to what your strength area is. And if he's really good at Fortnite, that may legitimately be a strength. But the problem is it starts robbing him of other opportunities to expand his horizon. How old is the kid? Do you know how old the child is? Eight. Okay. Because what happens is at that age... They become pretty fluent in that particular area and they can counter it. Well, and you can be the one, just come up with what are rules in the house 
why we buy into the rules and we're going to experience and expose ourselves to different things this week. And you can use yourself as a model this week. I'm taking up knitting, <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. I'm just faking it. But, but if you started doing that in maybe even a family mantra in our family, we expose ourselves to different things and we stick to the different things. There's a great rule that's called the, the one hard rule in perseverance. And it helps the child after a while realize he, that's just the rule in the house. You can't give it up once you start it because it takes a while to, to finally get good at something else. See how long it took you to get good at Fortnite? Because you put over and over and over so much time and effort into it. But now let's see something else that you'd love to do. It's really good. It's going to be rocky. Just warning you. And look at the support group you have. They're all going to say, did you do it? If you tell one other woman your goal, they're going to call you up and say, so did you do it? Because you're going to be prepared for a backlash because he loves what he does. He's probably is pretty good at it. But in the end, it's uh, maybe your new rule is, but it's got to be something with someone. Maybe what is he, what is he missing out on that he's not developing? Because these are the key ages. And the biggest thing that most kids across the country are saying what they missed out on was any kind of personalized connection. And that's taking them down a notch. And actually, that's one of the biggest reasons why we have seen such a rise in stress and anxiety amongst kids that's unprecedented. By the way, it's not just the U.S. 94% of, of counselors in Hong Kong say we need some kind of signs on depression. We're worried about our kids. Mm -hmm. it's, it's universal of what's happening. And the pandemic has done a royal number to us all. But now we got to backtrack on and we got to take back the parenting. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to move on to question two. I got to read it. So I cheat. I, I can read it to you. Go ahead. You want to read it? Well, go ahead. You I want my kids to work hard and be successful, right? We want our kids to work hard. We want our kids to be successful. We want to have high expectations for them. We don't want them to be lazy. We want them to know our expectations. So you're, they're either strict, really strict, or then we reduce our expectations. So how do we find that healthy balance? Is too much structure wrong? Yeah. It's a fascinating question, and it's the one question that every parent and teacher wants to know because resilient children have agency. That means they, they feel like they have a sense of control over their life, and they don't have somebody, the outside person, always helicoptering, hovering, and managing. That said, that's not so easy when you're three, is it? Because you need hovering, hovering, and managing. So the whole goal of the long haul of parenting is slowly start stepping back. And you got to figure out how you do it and when. Right now, your key is to look at your footwork. How often are you managing and hovering? Um, here's the things that first, what is, what is the best expectation for a child? First part of that question. The best expectation is one step over what they're currently successful of doing. So you gently start stretching and stretching and stretching because you want them to get better and better and better. But if you went five rungs ahead, there goes the kid. He, he feels like he's failed. So think of a rubber band. Your goal is to whatever task it is, keep stretching the child, stretch like a rubber band, but don't snap him. That's number one. That's expectations. That means that in certain cases, you're going to have to connect with the teacher to find out what he's capable of or the, the soccer coach. How long can he maintain or focusing? If he was only able to do it for five minutes yesterday, he's not going to be able to do it for 25 minutes today. It's one step more. That's the first key. So put that down in your line. In terms of structure, 
you got to figure out what your kid needs. Some kids are a little, I mean, unbelievable. They don't need structure. They don't like structure and they say they don't anyway. By the way, more creative kids are a little looser on it. If you put too much structure in it, it's like when you get to that chapter five, it back walls. So that once again, this is the darn parenting test. You got to look, watch your child for the first week right now and say, how much does he need when you say structure? Is that me or rituals and routines? Because if you find yourself, here's the classic of the kindergarten mom, mom at kindergarten who's saying the kid's driving me crazy because the kid during whatever the problem is, mom has to sit there the entire time. And it's exhausting because she knows the kid is slightly capable of it. So what does mom do? This is the rule. She gently starts stretching back. And how she does it is, you do the first problem, I'll come back and help you with the second. Then a week later, you do the first row, I'll come back and we'll do uh, do the second together. She gently starts stepping back so that the kid finally begins to realize, I got this. And that's what a thriver does. It is probably the hardest question and the most critical question on raising the thriver so that they feel like they have a little bit of control over their own life. Whoever asked the question, dig in and ask me again if there's something else I missed. Okay. There's well, there's one thing in there that when, I think it's in perseverance, which you probably haven't gotten to. But perseverance, because you really need the beginnings of these before you can get there. It really says to watch your footwork. Uh, and as your kid gets older, what you'll begin to see is a too much structure is you're always by the child and you're pulling him. That's you're hovering. What you then do is say, okay, I'm doing the one and I'm doing the hovering and I realize it. Yay, you're realizing it. What you then do is say, okay, I'm going to now step side by side instead of pulling him and help him learn. For instance, anytime you teach a skill, you teach it, you show the child, then you do it together with the child. Then you ask the child, show me that you can do it. And once he can, sorry, sweetie pie, you're on your own. Now you step back. So the key is, can the kid do it without you? Then start slowly stepping back until pretty soon what will happen, this is the gold mine. The child now pulls you and say, come on, mom, we got to go do this. This is really cool. Does that happen overnight? Nothing happens overnight in parenting. That's awesome. Well, I'll go on to the next question, but if someone wants to add to that, you can totally add at any time. No, the problem is I don't know the particular situation, the particular kid. So I'm just throwing out everything based on. Yeah, no, this is really good. So definitely pipe in at the end uh, for anyone who wants to share. So number three, do you know of any studies that show a decline in religion over the last decade that could also be impacting the decline in empathy? Yeah, I wrote a book called Unselfie, and I was trying to figure out why it was going down 40% in uh, 30 years, and it's ding, ding, dinging. And I began to see it's not everywhere. In certain cultures, it maintains. Now, when I look at the culture that it seems like empathy isn't nosediving, number one is the more technologically driven the country, no matter where in the world I am, the more the empathy is going down. The second thing is, uh, the bigger the area, uh, empathy breeds in a village, uh, meaning about 150, says Susan Pinker. As it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, 
the village effect goes and there goes the personal connection that goes down. The third thing is value structures or religion. What, uh, and I see that particularly when I'm in Laos and uh, when I was in Burma, I found smaller places that are more value driven. I mean, even in, in um, Laos, in, in the little villages, they have, can you imagine character mantras? Here's what we stand for. And then you go to New York City or the Bronx or L.A. That's the last thing you see. Um, I have not seen verbatim uh, a study that says as religion goes down, empathy goes down. But I've sure seen a lot of studies as character goes down, empathy goes down. Um, And there certainly are every study galore saying that religion is clearly going down as well as spirituality. So it's going to be an interesting one. I'll keep an eye out for you. Boy, I was reading one book that summed that up, and I can't remember where it was. But if it comes to me, I'll let you know. And it just simply means that empathy breeds in a caring culture. Empathy breeds in a culture that has an inclusiveness that simply stands for, here's what we're about. We're about each other. We're about caring. We're about um, all of those wonderful virtues that are lying dormant. And it's modeled. So when you look at a great, big, huge city, you walk around and you go, who's the kid looking to in order to see somebody model character or empathy? I go to a small village, any place in the world, I mean, really small villages, and it's profound. The smallest village I've ever been to in my life is the Gobi Desert in the middle of uh, Mongolia. And, and I go driving up to a school that is the size of you know a one-room schoolhouse. Now, where would you see this? This is the example of this. I drive up and kids come running to the car. Where have you seen kids come running to the car? Their first thing is, hi, how are you? And they start trying to introduce themselves. And then one kid comes to the car first. So I hand her a piece of candy. Another kid comes up running to the car. The kid turns and looks at the other kid, realizes she only has one piece of candy and tears it in two and goes here. And I'm going, oh, where would you see that? So it means that we need to tune up our own modeling and what we're doing because examples our children are seeing, I think are frankly atrocious for children. I think adults are behaving very, very badly. And it's why we need to point it out in children's literature, pointing out in ourselves, watch the movies and films our kids see, because it really does make a difference. And um, that caring connection piece is going down, but man, do schools do a good job of it. You can create a caring, inclusive school environment classrooms. When you walk into a classroom, you can see, is this an inclusive, caring place just because of how the teacher has been breeding it? You know, and then the kid goes out the door. My favorite example of that one was the story about the little guy I was my birthday party for my five-year-old. And this kid, I always said, you got to invite everybody. Well, I didn't realize that this kid was, you know, an interesting child. He had a very short attention span. But I'll never forget because he came screaming in the house. Where's the mom? Where's the mom? I got to find the mom. I thought somebody was dead. I said, I'm the mom. What do you need? He goes, what are your rules? I said, what do you mean? What are my rules? He goes, my mom says, I got to know what your rules are so I don't get in trouble. So what are your rules? I went, oh, bless the mother. I'm taking her out to lunch because she had instilled in her kid People may have different rules. I expect you to follow our rules, but you go find out what her rules are so that you get along. And I went, oh, bravo. (laughs) That's so great. That is so great. Well, I love how you said that um, we have to, am I muted? Can you hear me? No, I can hear you. Okay. So you said that, that adults need to model it. So that very simple 
fact that you said that I went into school the next day and the teachers were having a gene day to raise money for the kind of kids foundation. And I usually never tell the kids it's just something we do every month. So it's just something that is, but on purpose, I said on the announcements and the teachers are wearing jeans today because we choose a a donation every month to, and only because you said that it made me say, say it, say it to the kids. They need to hear that. They need to hear that the staff in this building have a heart to give to others. And it was so cool. Like one little thing just made it change the next day. See what that is? That was intentionality. Be intentional about being kind or pointing it out or showing yourself as the example or pointing it out in books and literature. And my gosh, she sure was unkind, but not in our family. We're kind. If you keep talking about it, it sort of built in. Sorry, keep going. No, that's all I was going to say. But you would love our book club every week because Michelle Everyone here is sharing something that they read from your book and literally how they're changing what they're doing in the next week. This is so powerful. So before I forget and give you an opportunity to say thank you so much for all your research, all your years of studying and putting this together, it is changing all the lives on this call. And we all have our circle of friends that it's going to impact. So thank you. Well, thank you. Go tell my editor. (laughs) <laughs> okay, give me his email. Okay, so here's a here's a little interesting one. As a teacher, I have a student who thinks yeah. they are better than others. How do I help them to realize we all have strengths? Comparing is not the way. How do I help this child move in the right direction? How do I help them in a positive way? Is that st- student taught that at home, that they are better than others? How do we help parents read your book and learn the healthy approach in this area? Oh, love that one. Mm, If you can find that answer, let me know. The key is that, uh, I mean, the most fascinating research on this one was from Ohio State University. And they clearly said how we praise our children, and we should be praising our children, but how we praise our children either increases narcissism or, or empathy. The narcissism with the kid is I'm superior. I'm better than you. So the answer is that if you always praise in comparison, or you got this and he got that, or um, or always praising every little thing that's the outside quality. They, uh, oh, I love your jeans. You look so good in that today. As opposed to, thank you for being so kind-hearted. The character traits on the inside, what they're discovering is that parents, by the way, we do that because we love our kids desperately and we think we're helping to increase their self-esteem. So that, in all fairness, we got written the wrong thing because everybody got on the self-esteem bandwagon and said, praise the kid to death. And in reality, it doesn't raise the confidence. So step one is you can gently halt the child. Anytime the child does something, yes, you're good at this and he's good in that. That would be one thing. Start, start, but not in front of the whole group. But if he's always comparing himself to something, then it would be, yeah, everybody's got their strengths. You're good at this and she's good at that. Or you're good at this. What is she good at? <laughs> so because too often they start focusing in on not only their strengths and don't see the other side. Um, usually it is something that has been praised or you're so special. And as a result, it really stymies the child after a while because it's not a popular. It isn't something that is going to win him friends. It doesn't influence people because he starts feeling I'm better or I'm superior It is fine for each kid to know what their strengths are and to acknowledge them, but it is not good if you always compare yourself and rank yourself in order. So maybe what you do is take them to uh, how you revert that is first watch your praise. Second of all, um, I wouldn't as a teacher 
pointed out to the parent that maybe what I would do is subtly, like I would do, (laughs) is put a little newsletter. This month, we're going to talk about confidence. I found this fascinating piece of research on how to praise kids that was mind-boggling. And it just says if you flip this way, you not only have a happier child who's more resilient, but also a kid who's got authentic confidence. Here's how to praise the right way. So it may be giving the subtle way to show a different approach because many parents, unfortunately, don't know another way. We've been told that or we've been modeled that approach and it backfires. Yes, so true. So it was you're either how we praise our children either increases narcissism or what was the other word? Narcissism or self-absorption. I'm better. So it's comparison or empathy, which is a feeling with the other person. Awesome. Thank you. And kids who are more popular. Fascinating. We've looked at kids who really do. By the way, kids don't need 50,000 friends. That's overrated. But they do need a couple of loyal buddies. But children who do have buddies, that social confidence instills resilience in them. Um, Smile a lot more, which has been tough with masks. But you can wave. You smile with your eyes. That's okay. Smile with your eyes. You can do a thumbs up. They also encourage others. And that's the piece that usually the kid who's being praised like this doesn't do nearly enough. So you can, let's go encourage another. Let's go do a high five for him. Let's go tell him, good job, or you tried your best. Because that's not comparing yourself to him. That's feeling with the other person. And that may be the subtly to take it down. Um, And they also say hello a lot more. It's fascinating. Three little ordinary things that they do. Because kids who who, uh, want friends want kids who aren't the the superior type that are kids who are actually the friendly or how you do it kind of a kid. Awesome. All right. So number five, what's the line between confidence and superiority? Maybe you touched on that a little. How do we build confidence in our kids, but not let them feel or act superior than others? I think the thing about confidence is that it's a quiet Superiority is uh, you can you can see it. It's the bragging kid who's always trying to one up the other kid or put the other kid down or let you know that this is what I'm good at. It's that that I'm just saying that in the real extreme. But a confident child uh, has a is more quiet in their approach. They don't need to let everybody know. It's a quiet inner confidence, and that is absolutely powerful in terms of resilience because he has that quiet ability to recognize his strengths and accept his weaknesses. He doesn't have to blare it out to the rest of the world. He clearly knows his strengths. And I'm not saying stop helping your kid develop his strengths, but when it's one upmanship to the other child, that becomes actually stressful because you spend more time comparing yourself to the other kid as opposed to how, what we have in common. Remember the empathetic kid is not why you're better or how you're different, but what you're having the same. And then this one, I'm going to try to explain it just so you, if you understand it. Reading the ideas in this book has been hard at times because it requires sharing things that we might feel and think privately. And it's kind of making us be a little bit more open about maybe what we're feeling inwardly? Is there something that could help a parent move them through this in some way? Does that make sense Um, a little bit? I guess some things that- What throws me is the word sharing because that means sharing 
to another? Is that sharing in yourself? Reading the um, ideas are hard at times because it requires sharing things that are felt and thought privately. I would never ask you to share something that you think is private. Okay. Oh, I see. So your feelings levels. Okay. Um, the only reason that a parent would want, would one suggestion. Oh, let's backtrack. Thank you for that. So let me see if I can clarify that. When you get to empathy and self-control have a multiplier impact. So empathy is the ability to feel with yourself plus with others, meaning it's uh, you need um, emotion vocabulary in order to not only identify your stress signs and those in others, but also feel with another. You can't go, oh, she really looks upset. I'm going to go do something about it unless you have those feelings. What we do know is that many parents, oh, okay, parents are more likely to first share their feelings with their daughters than their sons starting at age two. We know that. So we already have this thing as kids get older, our teen boys are already having a problem with verbalizing feelings. One way to help them is for parents to talk feelings more openly. Do you have to? No. But if you don't, then usually your kids won't. So when you share emotions in a family, it's called emotion coaching. John Gottman did it. You may want to look that up, whoever asked the question. Because John Gottman is probably one of G-O-T-T-M-A-N, probably from University of Washington. He uh, is probably one of the foremost authorities in relationships. And he says the basis of relationships with kids, you as the parent with your child, and you with your spouse is respect. And one way that you create the respect is to acknowledge feelings with each other. So if your kid wants to go up the level and is really sharing something more difficult, it's going to be harder for him to share. I'm really upset about this mom because if he wasn't given permission to feel. That's the reason for it. Um, a simpler one would be some parents are doing signs. Like when you go to the ER, the ER, when you're really in pain, asks on a scale of one to seven, how bad is the pain? Seven is you're a volcano about ready to explode. Zero, you could go to sleep right now. What some parents are doing who don't want to verbalize the verbalize feelings is they're, they're showing signs instead. That could work. Teachers are doing that. We're doing feeling check-ins in our classrooms a lot. Um, but that permission to feel and share the feeling uh, isn't uh, certain cultures that I visited. We're not so primed to do that. But it may be that maybe I need space or a privacy about it. It just is going to be a difficult thing later on because the way you're, well, okay, you could do it with your reading books. As we're reading a book, how would you feel if you were Charlotte? How would you feel if you were, uh, oh my gosh, Stone Fox and cry your way through it? Um, those kind can emote the feeling because without a feeling vocabulary, your child is really going to be stumped for developing not only empathy, but some of these other core competencies. If a parent is not feeling comfortable sharing the feeling, first you can work on it and see, is it something that parts I can share? Not all the time going around, I'm really frustrated. Um, by the way, your kid will already know it, so you might as well say it. <laughs> so, but the second thing is, you could also find other ways to do it. Watching the movie Inside Out is a fabulous learning experience for a kid, being able to talk about feelings and emotions. Um, asking the question, how would you feel if that happened to you? What would you need in order to feel better? As you're watching the news, the hurricane just hit. Could be a fabulous one. 
And the one parent asked, um, because of Michelle's marshmallow study, they're saying that they heard or read somewhere that the relationship between delaying gratification and educational success was a debunked theory. We weren't sure. Oh, there's, um, interestingly enough on that one, I read also, because I was looking at, they are, by the way, that research is a little bit contrary, but I went and pulled his book, which was more recent after he did that other study. And the other one is called Focus. The single thing that was defunct on that, oh, oh, go to Angela Duckworth. If you look at her book, Grit, oh my gosh, she's just a mind-boggling one. She took his original research, then they went on Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth worked together. They found a similar thing. It wasn't that it was a marshmallow, but the ability to delay gratification was highly correlated to grit and perseverance. Mm -hmm. But the single most important thing on all this one is that the reason the kid had the ability to delay gratification that even he realized was wrong 40 years later was because the parent had taught the kid how to delay gratification. We all thought, even he thought during the time when he was reading this, that God, some kids have it and some kids don't. But it took him quite a while to keep reviewing years and years later until finally when that book came out, I think he's passed away since. I don't, I hate to say that, but I, I think he did. But um, that was his most recent book. And he finally said, I'm wrong. I know that it's highly correlated to uh, achievement. Um, but the reason the kids can delay it is because the parents have taught them some kind of a focusing strategy. For instance, you'll see I, I was blown away by putting a frame around the image. If you visualize the marshmallow with a frame around it. It actually helps you so you don't eat it. If you look at the marshmallow and say, it's not a marshmallow, it's really a bug. The kid is less likely to eat it. There was like parents had taught these kids ways to stop. So they delayed it. And as a result, it stretched their abilities. Kids by nature, four-year-olds mostly will chomp on the marshmallow. But he looked at the why some kids at any age are. As you're reading that chapter, I'll tell you one little secret about that chapter. Tools of the Mind, I think, is one of the coolest preschool programs I've ever seen oh. anywhere in the world. Okay, now I first read about it in Paul Tuff's book, um, Why Children Succeed. And then Tools of the Mind, I kept looking at it because these were children who really would have all eaten the marshmallow. But for some reason, when you walk into those classrooms, there's no behavior problems. Kids are by nature the calmest kid you could possibly imagine, and they're not easy children. So what the heck are they doing so right? Debbie Leong is the researcher who worked with another researcher way back when, studied Vygotsky's work, and said self-control is more important. You, you have to learn self-control, and then you can focus and get on the mind. But she said one of the reasons for it is very similar. Kids need mediators. A mediator is. He, if I'm going to play with the blocks, most kids are going to forget they're playing with a block. So watch what she does. The first thing in play group is the kid, each kid sits down and goes, I'm Johnny. I am going to play with blocks. Draw a picture of it. He holds it. When he forgets that he's supposed to be playing with the blocks, the teacher said, Johnny, what are you supposed to be doing? He looked at, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be playing with the blocks. That helps him. The play plan. The play plan. That was and so brilliant. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I highlight that whole area. And I want to go around to every early childhood center and be like, have you heard of this? This is amazing. Yeah. You should look there into this. Fabulous YouTube tapes. But I have to tell you one other thing. You ready for the best part of this story? Yeah. For me anyway. 
as the writer, because I'm going, oh, I love this strategy. I love Vygotsky. I mean, I still have his books on from way back when. I'm going, oh, this person. So I emailed to Tools of the Mind. And I say, I really would like to interview this Deborah Leong, who is the founder of it. I, I need to know. Within seconds, she emails back and she goes, are you Michelle such and such? Did you graduate from Saratoga High? Because we were roommates. I'm no not, way. We were classmates together. And I went, oh, my God. Debbie Leong, and you married Rob Lowe. 